Somebody asked me if we were going to keep going in Song of Solomon during Christmas. Yes, we are. But I think it's worth uh, mentioning what does Song of Solomon have to do with the coming of Christ? Well, Christ came to the earth so that we could be redeemed. And as redeemed people, we are keepers of the law of Christ. We are those who want to please the Lord. We are those who want to live lives that are sanctified and holy and separate. And the founding institution of humanity is the institution of marriage. And so by seeing what the Bible says about marriage and what God says about marriage, we are following Christ. And it only follows that we would do what God says if we are followers of the Lord. So turn with me to Song of Solomon chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 15 through 17. Now in our series so far, I have occasionally referred to the writings of Puritan pastor Richard Baxter. He had much to say on marriage. And Baxter connects how you do marriage with your faith in Christ in this way. That all the component parts of your marriage are part of your duty to Christ as a redeemed sinner. That as those who follow Christ, that your home should be really the ultimate reflection of your status as redeemed as a new creation in Christ. And doesn't that follow? And we, we've even seen that experientially, that marriages in which one or both spouses come to faith in Christ, things change. And very often overnight. And Baxter gives... Six reasons to deal with probably the hardest part of talking about marriage, and that is disagreement. To avoid long-lasting dissension between yourselves in the marriage. And, and, and he's not talking about the occasional disagreement where you're just trying to understand one another, but this is the, the idea of a long-lasting bitterness and resentment because you cannot come to a consensus on one or more issues. But here is six reasons. He says, first of all, that unity is your duty to God. Unity is your duty to God. That is a, a great place to start. He talks about living with one another in agreement as the practical living out of your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Baxter asks this, asks this question, can you not agree with your own flesh? That if you're one flesh, then you ought to be able to agree that unity is your duty to God. And I love that one because it immediately takes the focus off the marriage and puts it heavenward. Toward the glory of God. He gives a second reason. Dissension will painfully upset your whole life. Dissension will painfully upset your whole life. He writes that just as you're, just as you're quick to care for yourself when you're hurt, you should quickly take care of any break in the peace of your relationship. He gives a third reason. Dissension makes your spouse undesirable in your mind. Dissension makes your spouse undesirable in your mind that it's a torment to your soul as you begin to see the other person in the worst possible light and the sense of separation and a lack of oneness. He says, quote, to be inwardly adversaries while outwardly husband and wife turns your home and delight into a prison. He gives a fourth reason to avoid dissension. Dissensions disrupt the whole family life. Dissensions disrupt the whole family life. He says that the couple are are like unequally yoked oxen where one is pulling against the other so they can't move, they can't do anything productive, they can't accomplish anything. And this is very, very true. Show me a family with, some, with a bunch of difficult children, I'll show you a marriage that's probably in bad shape because that's where it started. 
He gives a fifth reason. He says, dissension makes you unfit to worship God. Dissension makes you unfit to worship God. You can't pray together. You can't speak of heavenly things together. You certainly can't encourage one another's souls spiritually. And that's one of the major purposes of marriage is to encourage one another in the Lord. And then Baxter gives a a sixth reason. Dissension gives an opportunity to Satan. Dissension gives an opportunity to Satan. Every moment that you're separated emotionally, temptations are thrown at you from all directions because the spiritual protection of a unified marriage, it's offline. The, The power is out on the marriage, and so Satan's schemes go into full force. Baxter gives some wise counsel, which we'll add to throughout our time together tonight. He says, quote, and this is a paraphrase, understanding his 17th century English is a little bit difficult, so we've paraphrased this. He says, quote, agree together beforehand that when one of you is sinfully angry and upset, the other shall silently and gently bear it until you have come to your sanity. I like that term. These are very compelling reasons to learn to deal with dissension, with that long-term, those long-term problems that creep in and aren't ever dealt with. And that's the subject of our text tonight in Song of Solomon 2, 15 through 17. Now, I want to remind you of the scene because there's something happening here. This is, this is a, a poem, but there's a narrative story that's happening as well. Shulamith, the young virgin, a worshiper of Yahweh, is headed toward marriage with King Solomon. We've seen this multiple times. She has likely gone back to her family home in southern Lebanon during the non-harvest season for the winter. But now winter has passed. Solomon has come to see her. It's been a number of months that they've been separated. And we saw in chapter 2, verse 8, that she was thrilled to hear the sound of his voice or the sound of his approach to her family home. And he approaches the home. He doesn't go in, but he calls to her from the outside. Why is that? We speculated, very simple reason. You go inside in an ancient Near Eastern home and you aren't coming out for two days because the hospitality will overwhelm you. And so he calls out, you come to me. He gives her an invitation to go out to the countryside with her for the day, but she's withdrawn. She's hesitant. Verse 14, she's like a dove hiding in in the clefts of a rock and he desires to rekindle their relationship. But the big question is, apparently on Shulamith's mind, what has Solomon been up to during their months of separation? And we talked about her hesitancy and how he had to woo her to come and talk. Now we come to verse 15, and there is some debate as to who is now speaking in verse 15. Most of your Bibles likely arrange the poetry so that there's a break between verses 15 and 16, I think it's more likely the break should be between verses 14 and 15. And now Shulamith is speaking. Because what she has to say in verse 15 is much more likely something that she would bring up, which is our biggest clue that this is Shulamith speaking now. And now we get our first hint of dissension between them. And she's concerned. She wants to deal with these issues up front before they're married. And that really brings us to the topic at hand for tonight. And that is protecting your love. Protecting your love. And the way I'd like to divide this is tonight I just want to show you two threats to love and then two walls of protection around love. So two threats to love and two walls of protection for love. First of all, two threats to love. The first threat we'll call external danger. External danger. Verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Verse 16. 
So once again, and no surprise at all, we return to the imagery of the vineyard as representing their relationship and sometimes representing their actual physical bodies. In this case, context demands that it is the relationship and the vineyard, their love, it's, it's blossoming. Well, what does this mean? It means that verse 14 has been successful. They have been talking. They have begun rekindling their relationship. But it's also a vulnerable time. Using the vineyard metaphor here, the vineyards in blossom in early spring, uh, in April or so, uh, that become these giant bunches of grapes. If you go and just pluck the blossoms off, you've, you've destroyed everything. And so there's this concern that at their vulnerable time where the relationship is tender and fragile, that they need to catch these foxes, whatever those are. And I think a good contrast would be, you know, a couple that's been married for 40 or 45 or 50 years has weathered so many storms together that, that really there's very little that can shatter the relationship. But the premarital relationship is totally different. No commitments have been made. No vows exchanged. There's very little history together. And so the big question is, what are the little foxes that spoil the vineyards that can threaten their love? There have been countless interpretations to the little foxes offered over the centuries. Some say the foxes represent their unrestrained lust before marriage. Others say it speaks of other men who are competing for Shulamith. Some interpret this using similar references to foxes in the imagery of other ancient Near Eastern poetry, but that's just speculation. None of those countless interpretations, many, many others, none of them are found in the text. And they're certainly not found in the historical context. And so they're all guesses. And we would be on very, very safe ground to simply say that the little foxes represent any external threat to their love. And in fact, that's a, a defendable position. And that will be our application to this verse. That any external threat to your love needs to have a verse 14 solution. Come out from the clefts and the crannies and talk and renew love. But let's try to dig down into this just a little bit. What do we know? What are the facts that we have? Well, first of all, she refers to our vineyards. So the problem is not just about her. It's not about him. It's us. And this is very sweet, in fact, that she sees the little foxes as the enemy. Solomon isn't the enemy. The problem is the enemy. And that's a good place to start. That their enemy is the threat to the relationship. The other person isn't the enemy. We also know that foxes ravage crops in the darkness. So this is something taking place in the darkness, either symbolically or as something evil or in reality actually at night. We also know that they're not yet married. Chapter 4 verse 12 indicates very clearly that Shulamith has maintained her purity. There's no indication that she's tempted not to do so. And yes, she has a great desire for Solomon, but that is in the context of working toward marriage. We also know that she calls them little foxes, but they're pictured as a major force for devastation and ruin. So it's something that might not seem like an issue, but can fester and become something massive. And we think of James chapter 3, that the tongue is a little fire that spreads. We also know, we've already established that Solomon is surrounded by women. He is literally the most sought after man on earth. We also know that he already has at least one wife, Naamah the Ammonite, who would become Rehoboam's mother. 
And we could make the case that the situation is much more dire than just having one wife. At some point after their wedding, what women are surrounding Solomon? Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 8, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. And so the most likely solution for the external threat is other women. That Solomon's attentions and affections are divided in a way that's almost incomprehensible to us. And and again, we have a lot of trouble understanding the political and the cultural reasoning for Solomon using women to make alliances with surrounding nations. But we have to wonder how his life might have turned out differently had he made Shulamith his only love. What a wonderful thing that would have been. In fact, when Solomon wrote as an old man in Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, when he wrote, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. He's expressing, stay with one woman and love her and love her and love her. We would call it the elephant in the room. Shulamith calls it the little foxes in the room. The little foxes that will spoil their love. Foxes lurking in the darkness to ruin everything suddenly. Let me put it this way. The Song of Solomon is the story of the love between one man and one woman who are in a sea of women. All around them. Chapter 1, verse 3, the virgins. Chapter 1, verse 5, the daughters of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 7, daughters of Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 1, daughters of Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 6, daughters of Zion. 5, verse 8, daughters of Jerusalem. 5, verse 16, daughters of Jerusalem. 6, 8, queens, concubines, virgins. 6, 9, daughters, queens, concubines. Chapter 8, verse 4, daughters of Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 13, female companions. This is an estrogen-rich environment here. And Solomon is stuck in the middle of it and his wife-to-be is saying, what do I do about this? Hey, we can't even comprehend this, how she would deal with this. And in the same way, and we might say, well, we're glad we're not in that. Are you kidding? We live in a sea of temptation, don't we? It's all over the place. And these temptations are not simply just straying sinfully to another woman or another man. There's an ocean of other things to pursue at the expense of your marriage. Other things to idolize while your marriage dies on the vine from lack of nutrients, from neglect. And it is our duty to identify those potential idols which take away from your marriage. But concerning marital faithfulness, At the very least, we might use commonly known concepts such as boundaries or hedges to place around our marriages, common sense guidelines such as not having business lunches with the opposite sex alone, not having long intimate conversations with the opposite sex alone, not placing yourself emotionally or physically in the path of dangerous emotional temptation, not speaking to members of the opposite sex in the way that ought to be reserved for your spouse only, all these things that we're aware of and they're really common sense solutions And really, most of the time, infidelity is more about finding emotional and relationship gratification. But of course, it's a lie. It's a black hole of destruction, isn't it? Proverbs 3, 5, or 5, 3 through 5, rather, says that the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. In other words, You keep going down that road and you prove that you are lost and you prove 
that you were not ever in Christ. And it ends in your destruction. In Proverbs 5.16, Solomon says that the solution is, quote, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well to nourish a, a vital and, yea, even joyful and thrilling marriage. I, I have to tell you, I've heard this from comedians and frankly, I've heard it from pastors. I don't like the jokes about our marriage has settled into a dullness after all the years. I don't find a single scriptural admonition saying that that's the way it ought to be. Song of Solomon does not have an asterisk that says, don't bother after 20 years. It doesn't say that. Our marriages are to be flowing water, nourishing, vital, not murky water that will keep you alive. And so the first threat is external danger. And they're identifying here in verse 15 with the problem that they have that Solomon has other women in his life. The second threat will identify internal danger. Internal danger. Verse 16, My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. I'd like to focus on the second half. He grazes among the lilies. This is often taken once again as a sexual reference. And you remember earlier in chapter 2, verse 2, Solomon calls Shulamith a lily among brambles. So the idea of grazing among the lilies could be taken as an intimate reference. And certainly it toys with her growing desire. There's no doubt about that. But let me give you three reasons this is not speaking of present sexual intimacy here in chapter 2. First of all, in staying with the timeline of Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 12, indicates again that Shulamith is a virgin the day that they marry. The second reason this is not speaking of present sexual intimacy, there's, there's flexibility in this phrase. It can also mean that he pastures his flock. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But even, here's a third reason, even if we stay with the he grazes among the lilies, this is a picture of satisfaction. This is a picture of nourishment by her who is his lily. It doesn't have to be forced into a sexual reference at all. Now, we should remember, he came to her family home in verse 8. They're rekindling their relationship. She's hesitant. They've been apart for some time and they have some things to work out. They have problems to overcome. They have potential dissension to deal with in this still fragile relationship. In fact, it's even possible according to one timeline that Rehoboam is already born. That Solomon has a wife and a child back at the palace already. Again, in a a culture that we have difficulty relating to. But now in verse 16, it's clear that some time has passed. They've had the difficult conversations. She has come out from the cleft of the rock. They have caught the little foxes that threaten their love. They have seen the external threats as the enemy. And they've stood against them together. Now how they could stand against the enemy of Solomon having other wives is beyond our understanding. But in some fashion they have done so. Remember, we're talking about a culture that's 3,000 years removed from us. They think in ways that we don't fully understand. But look at her exclamation. This is how we know some time has passed and resolution has been found. She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock. In other words, things are back to normal. They're back to the way they started. Chapter 1, verse 7. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock. They've gotten back to some sense of normalcy. So what does this mean? It means that oneness has been restored. And we'll look at that in a moment. But 
I want to say this by way of application for some of you. In the depths of your heart, you may know that this oneness, this unity, this emotional and spiritual closeness might be more of a distant memory than a current experience. And can I tell you this? Song of Solomon would say that should be a current experience. It's not a distant memory. What is the primary root cause of a lack of oneness and unity? Very clearly from Scripture, it is the thoughts you choose to think. And that is the internal danger. That's the internal danger. At some level, they have overcome this. Scripture is very clear about this. Let me give kind of a long example here. Think about the 15 descriptions of true love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. So many of them are internal heart issues. Let me just race through these. Love is patient. That begins with a decision to be patient, which results in what? Love is kind. And so patience, the internal decision to be patient, manifests itself in kindness. Love does not envy. You would say, well, envy is not possible in the marriage. Oh, it happens all the time. When one spouse doesn't like the experience of joy that the other spouse may be having. Instead of being happy for the other, there's a sense of unmerited jealousy. Love is not arrogant. Arrogant love is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms because it treats the relationship as if the definition of a good relationship is you serving me, but not the other way around. Love does not insist on its own way. That's the outward fruit of an inwardly arrogant heart. You insist that your choice is more important because you're arrogant, because you're filled with pride. Love is not irritable, meaning that You're so picky, such a perfectionist that anything and everything can set you off emotionally. Sometimes we might use the phrase walking on eggshells to describe the effect of irritability. In the South, they have a phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But what is that? That says that means she's not loving. That's just irritability. Love is not resentful. That's an internal attitude that when I don't get my own way, when the other doesn't please me, then I have some sort of inherent right to emotionally distance myself from the other. That I get to be resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. This is potentially using guilt and manipulation and subtle forms of payback and vengeance to attempt to feel better. And there's a wicked sense of rejoicing in this. Instead, another internal attitude, love rejoices with the truth. The internal decision to do what is true to believe the truth about the other, that he is a redeemed child of the living God and doesn't deserve you rejoicing at wrongdoing. Love bears all things. That's the internal attitude of perseverance. Love believes all things. That's the internal attitude of having faith in the Lord and faith in your spouse. You probably married him or her for some reasons. Go back to those. You didn't look around to 8 billion people on earth and say, let me pick the worst one ever and that's who I'm going to marry. Love hopes all things, that no problem is too great to overcome. And love endures all things, that you decide that ultimately you will be there for the other person to the glory of God, regardless of what they do. You see how much of love is internal? It is in your heart. Almost all the descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13 are internal. Our Puritan friend from the mid-1600s, Richard Baxter, he wrote about the internal threat to a marriage. And again, I'm paraphrasing and quoting as much as I can. He says, quote, both husband and wife must mortify their pride and strong feelings about self. 
These are the feelings which cause intolerance and insensitivity. Listen to this. You must pray and labor for a humble, meek, and quiet spirit. A proud heart is troubled and provoked by every word that seems to assault your worth. And yes, absolutely, as spouses, we can hurt one another deeply because this is the person you're closest to in the world. And we all understand that, but Baxter's solution is key. You must pray and labor for a humble, meek, and quiet spirit. I don't know about you, but that's convicting. And what are you aiming for? He grazes among the lilies, probably better translation, he pastures his flock. You're aiming for a sense of normalcy, that all is well, that that there's a unity that's there. The bond of peace is restored, that the mystical union of your souls is being enjoyed. How do you know that's the case? Well, here's a simple thing to do. Ask. Are we okay? What's the phrase we use when that union is shattered? There's something, what, between us that's separating us. And that something is the threat, whether internal or external. The other person isn't the enemy. The something is the enemy. And in fact, if the two of you can get angry at that something instead of at one another, then you've made a lot of progress. And that something that's between you might be your own thoughts. In biblical counseling, there's a dynamic of asking simply two questions. It goes something like this, and it's very effective. First question, what percentage of the problem in your marriage is your spouse? Typical answer, 90 to 99%. That that would be what I would say. Second question, you can't force your spouse to change anything, but are you willing to obey the Lord and apply Scripture to the 10% of the problem that you're responsible for? What does that do? Well, that changes the whole focus from changing the other person to working on your sanctification regardless of what the other person does. I've done a bit of marriage counseling over my adult life and I almost just want to just tell them, just avoid the rush and walk in like this because that's what they start off doing. Very rarely has somebody come in and said, we're, we're here for counsel because I need to tell you just what a total jerk I am and why my wife doesn't deserve to be saddled with me. Could we start there? Nobody's ever said that. I'd probably have a heart attack if they did. The enemy now is not your spouse. The enemy is your own sin. The enemy is your 10%. Two threats to love, external danger and internal danger. I'd like to turn this a little more positive. Two walls of protection for love that we see here in this text. Two walls of protection. And these walls of protection deal equally with the external or the the internal dangers. The first wall of protection, cherishing your oneness. Cherishing your oneness. Again, in verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. Now, if we maintain that the most likely choice for the little foxes is the plethora of women surrounding their relationship, then this statement of ownership is a huge victory for their relationship. And someone might say, that sounds kind of possessive. My beloved is mine and I am his. That sounds possessive. Why? Because it is. It absolutely is. You don't share your spouse. There is ownership. There is a sense that I am yours and you are mine. In fact, I'd like to talk about this ownership. We talked about this a number of years ago in our series on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I'd like to go through these again. There's three qualities to this ownership. The first quality we'll call loyalty. Loyalty is the first quality of this ownership. 
Now, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just remind you that in verses 18 through 25, God is setting forth and defining marriage, and he makes a declaration. It's the first and only truly valid marriage license ever. Chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And let me read you what the King James Version says. Some of you might be more familiar with this. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That is famously called the leave and cleave principle. The idea is that you don't keep mom and dad as your top priority when you get married. Now, just let me be very clear. That's not really an issue of boundaries. It's an issue of covenant loyalty. You're changing covenants. The language of chapter of Genesis 2.24 is covenant language. It speaks of the dissolution and the completion of a former covenant. What was the former covenant? Ephesians 6.1, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That covenant comes to an end. Now the admonition to honor your parents, to treat them with kindness and care and love, that always stays in effect, but the covenant to obey is dissolved. The idea of holding fast, the cleave principle speaks of commitment and allegiance. It is a covenant, a purposeful decision to covenant with another party in loyalty and in love. And so the first quality of ownership is loyalty. You, you proclaim and you pledge your loyalty to one another above all. The second quality of ownership we would call victory. Victory. Shulamith makes this exclamation of ownership three times. And in fact, there's a, there's a growing importance each time. Her first exclamation here is in chapter 2, verse 16. She states this beautiful mutual ownership that he that her beloved belongs to her and she belongs to him. She makes a second one. Flip over real quick to chapter 6, verse 3. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. Now, rather than expressing desires, he's expressing a present tense activity. After the wedding, we have more freedom to see grazing among the lilies in an intimate light based on what? On mutual ownership. And so it grows in intensity. And then one more, turn to chapter 7, verse 10. Chapter 7, verse 10 hits the pinnacle here. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now she's just bragging. Why is she bragging? To say his desire is for me. She says it, I belong to him. It's based on ownership. Why would we call this mutual, this quality of mutual belonging Victory, she's asserting that despite the sea of women surrounding them, he is mine and his desire is for me. In other words, I win. She has the victory. There's loyalty, there's victory. A third quality of ownership we'll call mystery. Mystery, and I'd like to have us turn for a moment to the New Testament. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. And I want to just show you here this principle of mystery You'll notice that a good portion of the principle of ownership is bound up in the physical relationship between the couple. Genesis 2.24 speaks of the couple being one flesh. And the question is, does the one flesh idea refer only to sexual union or is there a greater mystical unity which includes sexual union? Well, it's an elastic term which can refer to both. And they're connected together. But one thing we do know, the sexual relationship creates a mysterious, metaphysical, spiritual bond between people. 
And this is why Paul warns so strongly against sexual immorality and adultery. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. This is not to say that that somehow makes them legally married. It just says that it's a sexually immoral act which mimics marriage. It mocks marriage. It makes fun of marriage. This is why premarital sex is wrong and so damaging to a future marriage. It's engaging, listen carefully, it's engaging in one flesh behavior without the one flesh covenant. It's trying to act like you've made a covenant when you have not. And it's damaging to the soul. That's why it's so difficult for someone who has been with sexual partner after sexual partner, just this this serial sexual immorality to suddenly be able to handle marriage. Very difficult for them because they've been connected at a spiritual level to so many different people. Now, what's the connection between this mystery, the profound invention of God, of sexual union and ownership? Well, Paul addresses this in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 begins the portion of this letter in which Paul answers questions about the Christian life which the believers in Corinth had sent to Paul. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, unquote. In other words, that's the question that they sent him. And it's more of a statement. They're, They're looking for him to say that is correct. Sexuality, even in the context of marriage, is wrong. And you might say, what, what would make them ask that question or make that statement? Every believer in the Corinthian church had come out of pagan cults where sex was used as a form of worship of false gods. And so they had a very negative connotation. And so they wanted to run from anything that in their minds had to do with pagan worship. And so to help them see God's view of marital sexuality gives a series of commands and one of these is found in verse 5 do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control this is a present imperative here meaning this always holds true never deprive one another unless there's some reason and even then he, he says Except perhaps if there's some reason, if there's some mutual decision. But he makes it very clear here that regular sexual union is commanded and it fulfills the the one flesh purpose and it serves as a detriment to sexual immorality. But what's the reasoning? What's the reasoning here? Well, the reasoning is based in ownership. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this is a, a rare thing here. It's very rare in Scripture to hear the Bible teaching about your rights. Almost always, what do we, what do we hear in Scripture? Take up your cross and follow Christ and get run over if you have to for the sake of the gospel. But in the context of marriage, Paul asserts your rights, not in a selfish sense, but in in the sense that the relationship is glued and bonded and cemented by physical union. 
And this is the mystery of ownership. That there exists this bond that can't be defined, can't be categorized. It's in a category by itself. This is why we don't write textbooks about love. We write poems about love. It's not just, I belong to you and you belong to me. It's, we belong to us. It's not just, I love you and you love me. It's, we love us. And we're defending us. We're protecting us. It's a nice thing to say to your spouse, I love you. It's a great thing to say to your spouse, I love us. I am my beloved's and he is mine. Ownership characterized by loyalty, victory, and mystery. Our friend Richard Baxter comments extensively on this oneness, on cherishing your unity in regards to dealing with conflict and dissension. I'll give you three exhortations. I chose from ten that he gives. We'd be here all night. But let me give you three. He says, first, keep alive your love for one another. Keep alive your love for one another. In other words, love your spouse dearly and fervently. It's a decision you make. He says, quote, love will suppress wrath. You cannot be bitter over little things with someone you dearly love, much less will you descend to harsh words, aloofness, or any form of reviling. Keep alive your love for one another. He gives a second exhortation. Remember that you are one flesh. Remember that you're one flesh. You can be no more offended with the words or failings with the other than you are with your own. He says this, Be angry with your wife for her faults no more than you are angry with yourself for your own. So, in other words, if you're raising your voice to your spouse, if we're going to follow Richard Baxter here, you're saying, you're the meanest person in the world except for me. I'm worse than you. I I should be yelling at me. What am I doing here? Go away from it. I need to yell at myself. Wouldn't that be refreshing if we would just do that? I need to do that. You need to do that. We all need to. He says this. I, I love this quote. Have such an anger and displeasure against a fault as will work to heal it, but not such as will cause festering and aggravation of the diseased part. This will turn anger into compassion and will cause you to administer care for the cure. If I could interpret him just a bit see yourself as part of the problem, then you can solve it. And then he gives a third exhortation, look to the future. Look to the future. This is so practical. He says, quote, remember that you must live together until death and must be the companions of each other's lives and the comforts of each other's lives. And then you will see how absurd it is for you to disagree and upset each other. I think there are a few things more shameful than watching an elderly couple fight. The first wall of protection, cherishing your oneness. Second wall of protection, preserving your oneness. Preserving your oneness. Go back with me now to Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 17. She is having him leave. That's what we're going to see here in verse 17. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Now, what is this here? She's going to have him leave. I'll explain that in a moment. But the bigger picture that we're seeing here is that there's a connection between curing dissension and intimacy. There's a connection between protecting 
your relationship and intimacy. The intimacy is growing increasingly desirous for both of them. And that it's a major and primary means of staying close, of keeping the foxes away, of keeping one. Solomon and Shulamith have caught the little foxes. They are cherishing their oneness. They're unified. They're close. And what's the natural result? The natural result of the the resolution of dissension and that mysterious sense of oneness is to desire to express the one flesh nature intimately. And that desire is precisely what's happening now. Again, verse 17, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. Now what we have happening here, this is a little bit confusing. There's two overlapping ideas There's two layers to this. There's no doubt that Shulamith is now expressing her physical desire for Solomon. They've caught the little foxes. They're one. They're unified. And she seems to speak coyly and in ambiguous terms about being together until when? Until the day breathes and the shadow flee of being together all night. About her beloved being like the gazelle on cleft mountains. Uh, The Hebrew phrase is here the mountains of Bether, which just means the mountains of separation. And so there's almost certainly at least a hinted reference to her own body here and her desire for him to know her in every sense. But the subtlety and the mystery of this poem allows for two layers. Yes, a hinted expression of extreme desire, but also the premarital action concerning that desire. Now, you may recall last time that I pointed out that there is a a literary inclusio. We said that was a section that's bracketed by similar terms. It's it's kind of a a self-made section here. And this section starts in verse 8 and ends in verse 17. In verses 8 and 9, we see Solomon as the gazelle leaping over the mountains. And now in verse 17, we have Solomon as the gazelle to leap over the mountains again, perhaps even a veiled reference to her own body. But we have to let the text speak for itself and follow what it says. This particular Hebrew word, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. It always means turn away, turn around, 180. What is she saying? She's saying, yes, we've caught the little foxes. Yes, I desire. Yes, go away. She wants him to go the way he came. You see those mountains you ran over to get here? Run back over them. We're not married yet. And they are being careful. Now some have pointed out that there's no such place as the mountains of Bether. So this can only be a singular reference to her desire to her own body. But there are actually numerous possible sites. And interestingly, some of them on the route north from Jerusalem to southern Lebanon where Shulamith's family home was. The most likely candidate is a place called the Bithron Ravine, the mountains of Bether. It's also known as the Jabbok River, which is situated between two steep rocky hills, and you would have to go through there to get to southern Lebanon. And so is there a double meaning here? Most likely, yes. But the overall flavor is this. Yes, we are one, and we are unified, and I desire you, but we must protect our love and stay pure until the right day. But they've learned something that will come out later during their married life. They've learned that their intimate life together, which is basically the overall main subject of the Song of Solomon, the book of Song of Solomon, 
that their intimate life together is the means by which they protect and preserve and express their oneness. That's how they protect their marriage. And yes, this time she's having him leave. But we get now a connection between conflict and intimacy. The intimacy is growing increasingly desirous for both of them, and it's a major and the prime means for staying close, for keeping the foxes away, for keeping oneness. This is why, as we said, with, with Paul commanding in 1 Corinthians 7 to not deprive one another, the intimate life of a married couple is the most powerful means that they have as created by God for maintaining oneness. In fact, the very phrase that God chose to describe his creation of marriage is literally fulfilled that the man and woman are one flesh. That's what literally happens. Now listen, Satan wants to destroy people with sexual immorality in all of its forms, but one of the more subtle forms of sexual immorality is the placing of marital intimacy as a low priority, as an extra, as an add-on, or worse, something that the spouse must earn from the other. Saying that marital intimacy is an extra or an add-on, it's like saying oil is optional for a car. Or the Bible is optional for the church. Or water is optional for a shower. Or oxygen is optional for air. You can't say that. If on the one hand, Satan is trying to get the unmarried to be overly sexual, he's trying to get the married to slowly let that one flesh protection and preservation and expression of oneness just fade away. And I'm not just talking about the stage in your marriage where physical challenges become a major issue. We all understand that. I'm talking about even young couples that begin the process of of getting too busy. If you had to guess, what would you think is the one event in a young couple's life that begins the process of eroding their sexual union? Ironically, it is having children. That begins to erode that. Career goals. Doing anything and everything with the hope that somehow their lives of intimacy will just magically happen. And when enough years go by, where the dullness has set in and you just say, I guess this is the way it is and the jokes start and you begin just kind of commiserating with others saying, yeah, it's just kind of to the dullness stage. But as we'll see later in Song of Solomon, Solomon and Shulamith will be very intentional about their love and their private time together, even far into their marriage. Listen, the conflict or the dissension which Solomon and Shulamith experienced and will again later in the poem, by the way, is resolved by talking, chapter 2, verse 14, and healed by intimate union together. Well, let's visit with our brother Richard Baxter one more time. Speaking of how to treat one another, he gives some relief and some comfort, ironically, with the theological fact of our sin nature. Here's how he does this. He says, quote, Do not forget that you are both sinful persons, full of infirmities, And therefore, expect the fruit of those infirmities in each other and do not act surprised about it as if you had never known about it before. Decide to be patient with one another, remembering that you took one another as sinful, frail, imperfect persons and not as angels or as blameless and perfect. Years ago, I had a married couple that I was was doing their wedding and they wanted to write their own vows and in each of their vows, they both said to one another, you are perfect. And I said, I'm not, I want to be a part of that because that's the last time you're ever going to say that. <laughs> what a great admonition. You marry the sinner. Don't be shocked. 
Let me remind us once more of Baxter's reasons to avoid dissension, unresolved conflict. Six reasons, I'll just read them to you again. Unity is your duty to God. Dissension will painfully upset your whole life. Dissension makes your spouse undesirable in your mind. Dissension disrupts the whole family life. Dissension makes you unfit to worship God. And dissension gives an opportunity to Satan. And so I would urge myself, I would urge all of you to protect your love, watch for external and internal dangers, and instead cherish your oneness, preserve your oneness. And what do you do when this, when this is happening? Well, you're honoring Christ because you're showing that you love him because you're obeying his commands. Isn't that wonderful that to love our Lord, he gave us something so wonderful as marriage that we can work that out with another person. This is how we honor Christ. And so I would urge all of you as married couples to sit down this week and have a conversation. How can you cherish your oneness? And how can you protect your oneness? And remember that the enemy is sin. The enemy is conflict. The other person is not the enemy. You did not take 8 billion people and say, let me find the most wretched, horrible person ever and marry that person. And then go, why is my marriage so bad? You didn't do that. You married your favorite person on earth, didn't you? You married your very favorite person. So how can you cherish your oneness and protect your oneness? And by doing so, let me take this one step further. Your home will be peaceful because your marriage is peaceful. Your children will obey you better because you're a united front now and kids can't, can't resist that. And if your family is peaceful, your family will then be following Christ. If your family is following Christ, then you're, you're bringing that to church and you're being an example. And if we have a church filled with families that are following Christ, we have a church that's effective. And instead of all the pastoral staff and the elders spending time trying to deal with all the problems in your home, we're praying for the lost and bringing them here to disciple them. And so if I could say this, how you deal with preserving and protecting your marriage ultimately has kingdom consequences that are fabulous. And so I would encourage us toward that larger kingdom view as well. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time we've had in your word. I do pray for all of the marriages represented here, those listening online even, Lord. I I pray, Lord, that we would take these admonitions seriously to remember the wisdom brought to us by Solomon, the wisest of all the men, that we should cherish one another, that we should remember these words, my beloved is mine and I am his. And so, Lord, I pray for our marriages. I pray that they would be honoring to Christ, that they would be presented as a living sacrifice, as it were, unto you. I pray that they would be accurately reflecting the picture of Christ in the church. And that with a church filled with families that are following after you, then we would be effective. And we would ask you, Lord, to bless us with bringing the lost to us to hear the gospel and to be saved and to see their families transformed as well. We would ask you to involve us in that important, vital kingdom work. And we pray for Christ's sake and all for his glory. Amen.